Uh, hey, Matt. How's it going? I'm doing great. How are you, Jonathan? Good. Uh, this is another episode of Agony of Defeat. I'm Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor in global studies at UNC who's interested in the intersection of sports and politics and history. And I'm interested in that same intersection. I teach in the Department of History here at UNC Chapel Hill. So we have a, we have a busy program today. Yeah. We want to start with our Agony of Defeat rant. Matt has a good one queued up. And then we're going to interview Victoria Jackson, who's a former UNC track athlete, and she's now a professor at Arizona State University. And she wrote an article earlier this year for the LA Times called Take It from a Former Division I Athlete, College Sports Are Like Jim Crow. The article got a lot of attention. And Victoria is just an incredibly smart and thoughtful critic and historian of sports, including collegiate sports. So we're looking forward to talking to her. And then we're going to wrap up with a quick review upon further review of our rant from last time. Uh, a, a post-mortem on Larry a Fedora. Post- and we will officially welcome Mac Brown to the University uh, of North. We'll welcome back him back to the University of To North UNC Carolina. Chapel Hill. So a busy program ahead of us. Okay. So um, one of our weekly features is, or bi-weekly features, whenever we podcast, what do we do? Every other week? Yeah. Whatever it is. We'll see is that one of us is going to rant about something. And so far, it's just been me ranting. I think I was ranting. I'm just mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it Although anymore. I, I joined in full-throatedly with <laughs> the last rant. Well, so. so I ranted about Facebook, I think, and then I ranted about Larry Fedora, right. um, who right. then within a week was fired, which you know I take full um, responsibility <laughs> for, claim. I'll, I'll take all of the glory. Actually, no, I, I'm, I'm sort of troubled by his firing. We can talk about that in just a second. But my rant this week... And you're going to rant next time, without a doubt. People I'm are going to think that I'm, I, yes. that I'm a downer. No, I, I have a rant all queued up and ready to go. But my, my rant this week actually has to do with uh, international soccer, uh, f- football, as they say everywhere else except for, for here. Uh, FIFA just had their award ceremony a couple of days ago. And one of the things that FIFA does is they award a – they give out the Player of the Year award. And uh, this year is the Croatian, the brilliant Croatian midfielder, Luka Modric, who um, also plays for Real Madrid. And he came, led his team all the way to the final in the World Cup in Russia this summer. He won Player of the Year award, interrupting years of dominance from Lionel Messi and, and Ronaldo. Some thought he was undeserving, whatever. That's not my, my rant. Uh, my rant is going to be about the, the women's award. FIFA... I don't know if you know this, Jonathan, but FIFA has a, you're going to be shocked to hear that FIFA has a problematic history when it comes to gender, uh, when it comes to women's soccer. You are correct. I am shocked. Um, The first Women's World Cup, so men started participating in the World Cup in 1930. The first Women's World Cup comes 61 years later, uh, but FIFA didn't even want to call it the World Cup. They thought that was a, that was a designation that was uh, a designation of honor that should only be applied to the Men's World Cup. So they named it after their candy sponsor, M&M's. It was the M&M's Cup first. And it was a big hit, actually. The 1991 M&M's Cup was in China, and there was interest in it. And then so retroactively, FIFA has said, okay, tell you what, we're going to call it the the, the World Cup. Um, Sepp Blatter, the one-time head of FIFA, got in a lot of hot water when he said that the only reason why people watch... Do you re- remember yes, this? Yes, I do. The only reason women wa- wa- or people watch women's soccer is... Because of their short shorts. Their short shorts. And if you want to increase 
interest in women's soccer, you just make the shorts shorter. This is Sepp Blatter, the longtime and uniquely corrupt head <laughs> of FIFA. Is he uniquely corrupt? I think he might be, actually. <laughs> okay, maybe yeah. he is. Well, yeah. that's really yeah. saying something yeah. in the world of international sports. Yeah. Well, now here we are in 2018, and FIFA finally gets on board with awarding a Women's Player of the Year award. Uh, it went to Ada Hegerberg of, of, of Norway. But just to show that sexism has not gone away in, in FIFA, the award was given to her, and the MC of the evening is a, a French DJ, Martin Solveig. He hands her the award, and out of the blue, he just asks her, do you twerk? Didn't you say, Matt, it was the first thing he that asked her? That was the first question that he asked her. Right. So she actually turned away in disgust. It looked like she was going to walk off the, the stage and said no. There was actually, I mean, to the audience's credit, kind of a gasp rather than, than, than laughter. Um, I mean, so think about what he's done. He's given this award to the world's greatest female athlete, we, we might say. And faster than Usain Bolt can run down the sideline, he instantly turns her into an object of male sexual desire. I am outraged. And then he claimed later, I guess in apologizing, right. that it was a translation or a language issue. Yeah, well, let, let's listen to his excuse now. Guys, I'm a little bit uh, amazed, astonished by what I'm reading on the internet. I, uh, of course, didn't want to offend anyone. Uh, this comes from a distortion of my English level and my English culture level, which is not obviously not enough because uh, uh, I didn't mean to offend anyone. Okay, I ain't buying it. How about you? <laughs> no, and I, I want to add one thing. It's 2018. Is it? Yeah, it is 2018. What the hell? What the hell? I know, exactly. I, um, it, it's the same old story. Um, okay, fine. You have stupid thoughts. You really can't keep it to yourself in 2018. Well, this is what I'm wondering. I mean, is this just, is this evidence of um, entrenched sexism in FIFA? Or is this just what happens when you ask a French DJ to host, you know, your, your sports award show? Right. I'm not sure who, who I'm directing my, my rant at. So we are very excited to have our very first guest. Uh, people have been telling us, enough of you two. It's time to get a, a different voice on this podcast. We, we, we got old in a hurry. It, <laughs> it sure did. And so we are very excited to have Victoria Jackson, who is a sport historian and a lecturer of history at Arizona State University, who wrote a very interesting op-ed that appeared in the Los Angeles Times in uh, January of this year, called Take It From a Former Division One Athlete, College Sports Are Like Jim Crow. Uh, Victoria, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Especially this week of all weeks. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we can talk about some of the things that have been going on here at UNC's campus. Never a dull moment here at UNC. And you were a UNC student. Would you mind just uh, telling the listeners a little bit about your time here at, at UNC and the, um, your athletic experiences here? Yeah, thank you. And and thanks for this opportunity. Um, understanding that many of your listeners are UNC students, I feel a bond with them. Um, they are fortunate souls, even in the midst of what's going on <laughs> currently. So I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I attended what I like to call a Title IX high school um, in the late 90s, which I consider to be a high watermark 
in the history of women's sporting opportunities and educational institutions. Uh-huh. And um, really could go anywhere I wanted to go because of the collegiate scholarship model and because I went to a school in a wealthy suburb of Chicago. I had opportunities to play sports and um, participate in national competitions that got my name on national ranked lists. So I knew I wanted to go to an elite public institution and Certainly your students know that UNC is on that list. And, um, you know, grew up loving the University of Michigan um, and actually hating the Tar Heels. Well, I I should interrupt right now. Jonathan was about to. Jonathan uh, is a University of Michigan undergrad, so don't say anything, you know, too too rough about the Wolverines. (laughs) Don't bring up the football game, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, Yeah, well, yes. I I won't go there. Um, No, I I was obsessed. Like, I was obsessed to a degree that was probably harmful uh, with the (laughs) Fab Five. And, of course, it's, like, immortalized. I don't know if it still is, but, you know, Pizza and Pasta on Franklin Street had, like, a mural of that game in the back room and stuff like that. Victoria, Um, maybe, Victoria, I just want to interject quickly and say, maybe we should have a separate podcast where we just talk about the (laughs) Fab Five. Um, Because there's so much to say about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and invite in uh, Yago Colas, who uh, organized a Fab Five at 25 anniversary event in Ann Arbor. Yeah, he is my um, uh, my my inspiration for a, a race and basketball class that I'm going to be teaching here at, at UNC in the um, upcoming spring semester. His his work on basketball and race is great. That and also your course sounds fantastic, and all of your listeners should be already enlo- enrolled or eager to enroll in that. I, that sounds I, fantastic. I, Victoria, I think they are, actually. So, <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. I, I make good, all good. my students listen to the podcast. It's mandatory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, anyway, I knew this was going to happen. We have too much to talk about. Please uh, keep, uh, keep on talking to us about uh, your, your time here at UNC. Yeah, so, I mean, so idyllic experience. I, you know, got to participate in sports. I got to... Study. I fell in love with history at UNC. I was actually a math person originally and um, took a class with Mike Green, yeah, yeah. Um, the late the late Mike Green. And just he, oh, my gosh, he blew my socks off. Like the, the way he told stories, the way he presented and organized his lectures um, around big ideas was, I mean, it mesmerized me. And so I switched my major, became a Theta Purdue and Mike Green groupie, um, wrote my honors thesis with them. And, you know, I could do all of that, first of all, because my college was free. (laughs) And uh, I didn't have to worry about working or anything like that. And um, second, because I, well, I, I only competed for UNC for my freshman and sophomore years before going on a medical release. Well, I don't think we've, but, e- we've even talked about your, your sport and what you did here at, ah, at yes. UNC as, as an athlete. Cross country, indoor track, and outdoor track. The okay. sport that is always in season. Right, right. <laughs> the sport that often has athletes counted multiple times for Title IX compliance, too. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. So you'd be counted three times. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, yes, but um, yeah, and and when I went on the medical release, my my you know my school was still paid for by athletics, and um, you know because of that, I had eligibility to compete in graduate school, and 
you know, we hear these horror stories about students being held hostage by their first schools when they try to transfer. And not only was my process super easy to get my fifth year of eligibility to compete at Arizona State, super easy to petition and get a sixth year, too. Yeah. So um, I, all these horror stories that we hear, uh, not the case for me in part because I was participating in a sport that, let's face it, nobody really cares about um, and also doesn't, you know, it, it's not a revenue-generating sport, so there's no incentive to prevent me from going elsewhere to a certain degree. And then was it at Arizona State where you say you would say you had your, your high watermark as a um, competitive collegiate athlete? Yes, absolutely. Um, you, can, I was, you can brag a little bit, Victoria. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, you know, what, what made me successful was that the program was so strong. I like, I can't, I mean, I, this sounds so naive in retrospect, but like, I had no idea that the, um, cross country and track programs at Arizona state were so good. I just, I came here to work with Peter Iverson in native American history. And then like finding out the team was good was icing on the cake. And fortunately, um, Peter Iverson was very supportive of, my interest to continue to compete as a collegiate athlete. And the team was really supportive too. I often didn't run with my teammates and just got in runs on my own because I was so busy with um, coursework and also uh, TA responsibilities. But we, our team, we trophied in at nationals, at NCAA nationals, which you finish in the top four, you get a trophy. We finished in the top four in all three seasons, cross country, indoors and outdoors, my second year which was the only, only the second time in history a women's program had done that at the time. Great. And then um, riding that wave, I mean, when you're on a team that's elite and excellent and successful, it, it really does um, help individuals up their game. And so um, I, I rode that wave and tapped into the energy of our program Is and uh, won a national title in the 10,000. Awesome. 10,000 meters. What was your time? 3254. You, you remembered it. I was positive you would know. Yeah. That's <laughs> What's awesome. funny actually is a Blue Devil finished second, and she's a friend, <laughs> and she's married to a uh, former Tar Heel, um, Clara Horowitz Peterson. And so that was kind of nice to, to have a Dukey finish second. But not only did she finish second to me outdoors, she finished second to my ASU teammate indoors in the 5,000. And, and she, she was clearly frustrated that's, that's <laughs> by great. the two of us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, Victoria, we're interested to know, because um, it does sound like in many ways you had a great athletic experience as a collegian, uh, undergraduate and graduate. At what point... Was there a moment or what point did you start to think more critically about the enterprise, uh, collegiate athletics? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I should have known sooner based on the type of scholarship I was tapping into. Um, but, you know, I think part of it, too, is when you're in the system, you really, you know, you bleed Carolina blue. I joke that, you know, you drink the amateurism Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And part about part of what, you know, makes us successful in sport is true, is eliminating distractions and focusing on the task at hand. And, you know, there is no space for critical thinking to a certain degree in intercollegiate athletics because any sort of, you know, negative thinking takes away from the project of being excellent. You've mm -hmm. got to be positive all the time. You've got to be, you know, part of this effort. 
And um, so my my scholarship, I was I was very much focused on um, indigenous history and African American history, and within that, education and privilege and power and um, opportunity and exploitation and you know structural racism and all of these things that were like kind of right in front of me. And it, it took a while for me to connect the dots. Part of it too is the power of the expanding opportunity for women in sport narrative project. Mm-hmm. Um, those who work on Title IX and study Title IX or work in women's sports, I mean, it's very easy to, to see the ways in which, you know, there, there isn't equity. This is still an ongoing project. But, <laughs> like, in this industrial scheme within intercollegiate athletics, it's one part of this bigger puzzle piece, which is a very, a very exploitative relationship between the revenue sports and the non-revenue sports. So it, it took me years of study and contemplation and reflection on my own experience and um, reading the literature and thinking about the world around me to get to the point where, you know, I assert um, that this big idea for the first time publicly in that L.A. Times piece that it's black athlete labor that's subsidizing white athlete privilege. That there's a relationship going on here in college sports that we're neglecting. We were, you know, those who are critical of big-time college sports often look to the coaches, multimillion-dollar salaries, the administrators, you know, the the facilities, all of this stuff. But rarely do we look at this connection – between the students who are playing revenue sports and the students who are playing non-revenue sports and their backgrounds and their identities and um, also their educational opportunities and outcomes, which are also bifurcated, and it absolutely correlates with race. If anything, it's just another way to show the failure of residential and educational desegregation in the United States. It's a story of 20th and 21st century America. Mm. Well, as a historian, I'm, I'm, I'm grinning because one of the things you just did is really make a case for the power of history and the importance of, of, of understanding history. And obviously, there's this really kind of rich tension uh, in the United States between the pursuit of um, civil rights for African-Americans and um, civil rights for, for women. And it's a tension that we saw in the abolitionist movement and in the civil rights movement. And what I think is so smart about your your piece, and, and so I'm going I'm to summarize it, and you tell me if you think that I'm that I'm getting it right here, is that essentially your athletic opportunities have been paid for, um, and they've been paid for by the labors of the revenue athletes, and a little more specifically, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the percentages, um, your athletic opportunities and your educational opportunities were paid for by African American athletes. Yep. That is correct. And so let me ask you a question about your, your, your title. Um, you use the term Jim Crow. Um, Division one, you know, college sports are like Jim Crow. Was it easy to come up with that analogy? Was that an obvious analogy for you? Was it one that, I guess what I'm asking is, is this, I would imagine there were a lot of reactions to this, this essay. And I would imagine that one of the reactions were people, at least I hope, who applauded you for illuminating this very important issue. I would imagine there were some people who just dug in their heels 
and said, I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested in, you know, just these knee-jerk reactions against anyone who is critiquing the enterprise, anyone who is critiquing American sports culture. Um, but then I was wondering if uh, a conversation ensued about your use of the term Jim Crow and if anyone found it uh, problematic in any way. And, and, and Victoria, just to, just to follow up on that very quickly for you to respond, that folks may have thought that the underlying arguments you were making were valid, but that the characterization of the totality of these relationships you're describing as Jim Crow some would have found as offensive as they do sometimes when people analogize college athletics to slavery because of some of the obvious ways that they're not alike. So, so I think we're both just interested to sort of have you explain your thoughts about that term and, and then, of course, the underlying dynamics you're, you're, you're thinking about. Yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, well, first of all, in the body of the column, I, I said 21st century Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And then in the headline, of, you know, I, of course, we don't control our headlines. Um, they dropped the 21st century part. Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying it's the exact same thing as the, the kind of Jim Crow system that developed in the, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, but it's a new iteration of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I see this in a couple ways. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm not willing to go as far as Bill Roden and, and call this slavery. And we, you know, we had a conversation about that. Um, I, I had the privilege to speak with Bill and also Jamal Murphy on their podcast, Bill Roden on Sport. Um, wow, first Bill, first Bill Roden and now Jonathan and I. You're really, um, <laughs> this is you're, amazing. You're, you're, you're moving up in the world yeah. very clearly. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, don't be silly. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I can't go there. Um <laughs> Because I'm a historian. <laughs> right, right. But I think there's there's so many layers to thinking about this as, you know, a 21st century iteration of Jim Crow. Um, I, be, I kind of became obsessed with Derek Bell's interest convergence theory, which he applied to his analysis of Brown versus Board of Education. Um, so the, the idea behind interest convergence theory is if we look at uh, U.S. history, anytime there's any major, remarkable, positive transformation for black people, it's because white people are getting something out of it, too. Mm. Um, never does it happen just for the sake of organically for black people. Mm. Um, there, there's this interest, you know, convergence of interest. And, oh, my goodness, is mm. that not the history of big-time college sports and the desegregation of predominantly white and, in the Southern context, historically white universities. <laughs> right. You can come to our state's premier elite institution, but you got to give us something in return. You got to entertain us. Right. And that entertainment part is is really where the Jim Crow term is so useful because it's a term that comes from vaudeville and this long history of black entertainers gaining access to but not being full participants in um, the institutions of white society, and then having to entertain white people once they do gain entry. So that's where I think Jim Crow is really useful. And um, again, it's it's this you know subordinate, secondary status within this space um, because of the differential in the educational experiences once they do gain access. 
Um, and then the, the outcomes, too. Uh, you know, Sean Harper's Race and Equity Center at USC does the um, research that we all kind of depend on mm-hmm. looking at the statistics and the graduation rates of black men in the revenue-generating sports within the Power Five conference. And it it's certainly not the same sorts of outcomes that we see for the other athletes in the non-revenue sports and then um, definitely not what we see within the student body at large. Yeah, I, I think in the most recent numbers released here um, for, for UNC, for the African-American revenue athletes, we're at a 42% graduation rate, which is even a little bit lower than the numbers that, that you had in, in, in your piece. So we're going down rather than... Uh, than and, and this is in an institution where the overall graduation rate is about 90%. Yeah. So the gap is enormous. Uh, I know that UNC's is actually one of the bigger gaps in the, in the country between black athlete graduation rates and the institution's graduation rates. You know, Victoria, uh, yeah, no, go ahead, please. Sorry, I just, you know, because we, we're, we can't help ourselves and we complicate everything. Um, the, the, the other part of this is um, APR and these statistics that the NCAA keeps, which incentivize schools to kind of do a lot more hand-holding, I think, than they should with regard to academic support for athletes. Mm -hmm. And this metric that schools are able to improve their APR results every single year. Um, I mean, sure, we have an issue of great inflation across the board in higher education, but you can't can't get better every single year at your um, GPA rates and your graduation rates. It's, Mm. It's impossible, right? And so that, that's troubling to me, um, that the schools are incentivized to make sure they're constantly improving. That's yeah. a recipe for, for me. That's a recipe for potential scandal and corruption. So at the same time... Well, nothing um, like that would happen at UNC, Victoria. <laughs> so sorry. Was, was that a low blow? All right. <laughs> sorry. I just had to, to include that part, too. Yeah. No, no. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Victoria... Uh, We could, of course, talk about this much, much longer. In some ways, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. But I am interested, we're both interested to know your thoughts about what a more equitable system might look like. Is it paying revenue sport athletes? Is it, uh, what, what, what are some thoughts you have about how this enterprise could look different uh, than it does currently. Yeah, you've written a very interesting and provocative piece um, and, and much talked about piece that's outlining a, a problem that needs to be outlined. You know, what, what's the solution? Is there one? Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, right. So I've been told you're a historian. You shouldn't be talking about policy. And blah, blah, blah. You're not, you know, you're not equipped to do this. And so I kind of skirted the issue and said, well, I can just call attention to structural issues in this longer history, blah, blah, blah. But no, I think I am equipped to talk mm-hmm. policy. I do a lot of work with intercollegiate athletics. Um, I, I work with coaches. I work with administrators, and um, especially with student athletes regularly, like all of the time. That's why I think looking at how this plays out at the individual institution is so important because these are all people who are really committed to the well-being and 
long-term goals of athletes for the most part, Mm -hmm. they are in the business of education. And so the more we can build bridges across academics and athletics, the more we can think creatively and innovatively about what we can do to better serve athletes, first of all, um, not ignoring the fact that they might want to go pro. Like, let's set them up for success if they want to go pro. So that's one part of it. But also, hey, we are all employed because of them. So let's do a better job of serving their long-term educational experiences and potential career outcomes by um, extending the timeline. I think lifetime scholarships are something that the Power Five conferences absolutely can fund. The institutions and the conferences could come up with a way to do this for the revenue sport athletes for sure. Um, And then this way we don't have to do all of the ridiculousness in the short term to, you know, and, and all of the, the troubling um, solutions, I'm using air quotes, which you can't see, um, to help students retain their um, eligibility, their athletic eligibility, and keep their grades up. This way we won't have clustering in majors. We won't have students, you know, enrolled in easy courses to keep their GPA up, those sorts of things. We can set them up for success and come back. You know, if you go pro and have an average length professional year, which is three years, mm-hmm. come back when you're done yeah. um, or go anywhere, like any school within the Power Five conferences. If you've moved, you can finish your degree there. So that is one thing I think we can do right away. Another thing we can do right away is um, allow students to share in the profits off their name, images, and likenesses. Um, there's a number of Division One coaches and even higher education administrators who are becoming a little bit more assertive and publicly expressing their support for that as well. Um, and then finally, the one position that may be different from others is that I don't think higher education should be in the business of professional sports. I mean, they already are, right? right. But I don't think we should be um, using this space in a way where athletes are getting salaries. I think if there's a professional league, it could be affiliated with the universities but run independently. Hmm. And that model exists elsewhere. Um, David Ridpath shows this in his work and others as well. Um, in Mexico, the UNAM Pumas are affiliated with UNAM, but they're a professional club that's independent of the university for the most part. So, And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're a Michigan Wolverines fan and you're an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, and those are pro teams affiliated with the schools. Is it really going to make a difference to your fandom in the, at the end of the day? I, I really don't think it is. Uh, I, so I, I see a two-tier system in development where we have professionalized programs affiliated with universities and then a scholastic model of sport operating for the students enrolled at those universities. So, Victoria, I, I follow you on, on social media, you know, particularly Twitter, and I've been really jealous over the last couple of months as you're talking with William Roden, um, you're, you're going to conferences here and there. But I was never more jealous when uh, you were sending pictures from Mexico City. Uh, you went down there for the 50th anniversary of those momentous games, and you had a picture um, at the, looked like at the, at the track with um, John Carlos and Wyoming Atias. And I was wondering, um, well, first, I guess the first question is, can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing down there and why a uh, pointy-headed intellectual got to ha- uh, hang out with Tyus and, and, and Carlos? What a thrill that must have been. Oh, no, that's right. You used to <laughs> run, too, so you're not just an intellectual. 
I know. I, I was like, which part of me should be freaking out more? The yeah. history nerd part or the track <laughs> nerd part? Yeah. Like overwhelmed by, oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, in, it was incredible. First, Mexico City is like the best place on the planet. Huh. So if you haven't been, you have to go. Okay, I will go. Um, and then, yeah, for, for the sports history, the absolute top five moment, those 1968 Mexico City Olympic Games. Um, so I kind of created my own opportunity to go and join our Global Sport Institute um, for their commemorative event. So we, Arizona State, has this really cool sport and society institute run by Ken Shropshire, oh. um, which is yeah. funded in part by Adidas. And it's the Global Sport Institute. And, I mean, the mission is to have events, um, publish, and fund research and really work on this project to change the world through sport. So there were two events. There was the first event in Mexico City with Tyus and Carlos, and then a second event, which um, broadened out the panel participants at the Phoenix Art Museum, which was really freaking cool, hmm. um, later on in the month or the, the following month. Um, but yeah, so Mexico City was so, and, and um, you know, we did this trip to the, the Olympic track. It was the first time both John Carlos and Wyoming Atias had been back to the site. Well, of, uh, you know, this. Well, yeah. Uh, I'm guessing, so in, in my, um, you teach a course on sport history, as I do, and in my sport history course, I describe Wyoming Atias as probably the most underappreciated athlete in American history. Can you talk a little bit about her athletic career and what she accomplished at the Olympic Games? Yes. So Wyoming Tyus is the first back-to-back gold medalist in the 100-meter dash in the Olympics, man or woman. Right. And you're right. Does not, like people don't, we should all know her name. She should be a household name. She is not. Because she is a black woman in the Jim Crow South in the 1960s. Yeah, one of the Tennessee Um, State Tiger Bells. Yes, one of 40 Olympians coached by Ed Temple, wow. who she she says uh, she makes really, I mean, she's, oh, she she does not hold back. She will tell <laughs> you what she thinks. And she calls Ed Temple Title IX before Title IX. Hmm. She's like, you know, he was Title Eight because they had a scholarship <laughs> model at Tennessee State for um, the athletes there you know, that they put in place because they, they wanted to support a pathway for people who you know, wouldn't be able to go to college otherwise. Somebody like Wyoming Atias, who probably wouldn't have gone to college if, you know, she wasn't a track athlete. And she, like, the personality she had, too. It's not just the stats. It's the personality Mm -hmm. she brought to the track. She was dancing on starting lines 50 years before Usain Bolt. You know, she, she had a party in those blocks and used this, like, positive energy to dominate her competition. And she's the and, one who, um, if I'm not... I've been very outspoken about how the OPHR did not do hardly anything to see if the women wanted to participate in the protest. That's exactly what I was going to ask you, right? Um, uh, Harry Edwards and Smith and Lee Evans and others. Um, for uh, ju- all... Just as a reminder to, for our listeners, the OPHR, the Olympic Project on Human Rights, uh, which Matt and I have talked about in previous podcasts, is is what Victoria is talking about. Yeah, and so it sounds like there was very little space um, for a a female voice in that movement, which in some ways is, you know, is the story of the larger civil rights movement. Um, So, um, boy, it must have been such a treat to actually hear that voice and and meet her. Absolutely. And it's the history of athlete activism, too. Um, We have this 
you know, you're not doing it right if you're keeping women out of the narrative of athlete activism all along. It's not that they've just recently joined as well. It's from the beginning, women have been the foundation of athlete activism and participated along the way. It's just their stories haven't been told. The first person to protest during the playing of the national anthem was Rose Robinson, a high jumper in 1959. Like, black women should be integral to our understanding of athlete activism and um, the way we construct narratives. We hold so much responsibility and power as scholars to do this the right way, and we're not doing it the right way if women are an afterthought, which they still are. Yeah. Great. Victoria, thank you so much. Um, So Victoria Jackson is a sport historian and a lecturer of history at Arizona State University. If you have not read it, um, check out her her LA Times op-ed, Take It From a Former Division I Athlete. College sports are like, and we'll put it in parentheses, 21st century Jim Crow. Uh, Victoria, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. Yeah, Victoria, this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a blast. Have, have a great day. You too. So thanks again to Victoria. That was a fantastic Oh, that interview. was awesome. She, yeah. She's remarkable. Uh, so we want to close the show this week with our After Further Review segment. As we mentioned at the top, uh, as a reminder, Matt ranted last time. And again, I want to credit myself for having full-throatedly joined in the rant about Larry Fedora, the now former UNC football coach. So we want to provide a brief coda to Fedora's career here. Yeah, codas. One of them certainly is as a member of this university, um, the fact that he is now getting $12 million not to coach Football, John. What do you the, think? The, the, this is his buyout. This is his his buyout. Um, Twelve million dollars. Where do you think that money comes from? And I'm actually asking. I mean, no, no, does it, it, does it, the athletic director Bubba Cunningham find someone who says, "I'll give you twelve million dollars just to fire him," or does it come from us? Right. So it's certainly not going to be from a donation. Uh, what we often hear about special projects, including, look, this university has spent millions of dollars on PR advice, managing scandals over the last few years. And we always hear the same thing, that is not coming out of tuition or fees, that money's being raised separately. Athletic money is athletic money. And and I'm skeptical. Yeah. Uh, That may be true in some formal accounting sense, but as they like to say in economics, money is fungible. Right. And if it's being spent in one context, it's not being spent in another context. We know tuition's going up. Fees are going up. And fees certainly help pay for the athletic department. That's right. So I suppose you could be a sophist and say one thing has nothing to do with the other. And I just don't buy that. When your fees go up, Larry Fedora says, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so he's being replaced by, by Mac Brown who I suppose if UNC has had a, a, a semi-recent golden era in college football, Brown was the, was the guy. I did a little research since we were just talking about revenue sports and graduation rates. Uh, the glory years at the University of Texas when Mac Brown, you know, very, well, it was Vince Young who led them to the national championship, but Mac Brown happened to be the coach then. The graduation rate for the University of Texas football team in those years, 2004 to 2007, was 71%. Are you hopeful? That he'll achieve something similar here at UNC? Yes. Well, as we talked about earlier today, 
We have a long way to go on that front. <laughs> right. We are we are not at seventy one percent. I don't think that Mac Brown was hired primarily to address that <laughs> issue. Uh, so I can say I'm hopeful, <laughs> okay, you but are not hope. optimistic. Yeah, and I thought Victoria made such a great point that don't get kind of hung up on these these numbers. Don't don't worry too much on incentivizing graduates. Let's just educate right. the uh, young people. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this was great, Jonathan. Yeah, Matt, fun as always. Uh, thanks also as always to Keaton and Olivia, our fantastic producers. And, of course, a special thanks again today to Victoria Jackson, our guest, who gave us such wonderful insight into the world of college athletics. Yeah, and we are going to give um, similarly wonderful insight into the world of Rocky Balboa next time That's we, right. we talk. We're going to talk about all things Rocky. So if you're a fan of the Rocky films or if you're like my daughter and you have never seen a Rocky film, you can't afford not we'll to We'll be discussing the Rocky Creed franchise That's right. from, from start to finish. I know which one my favorite is. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that next time. That's great. Okay, well, thanks to everyone for listening today. And if you like us, please like, listen, and share. You can find us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. And also we will be tweeting out our next episode soon. Uh, and we'll look forward to speaking with you again in our next episode.